you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 976. 976. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, We will begin reading at verse 15 and then we will read into chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, Sometimes the chapter uh, breaks, which are not inspired. Uh, It's not part of what was handed down to us. The chapters and verses were uh, given to us somewhere in the 1500s. And so it's oftentimes helpful to read over those chapter breaks to see the connection from one chapter to the next. And I hope to point out a few of those details tonight. The other thing I would have you to keep in mind as we read this is sometimes people beginning in Ephesians chapter 1 think that this is um, a very high and lofty theological treatise that was really intended for the seminary population, for the seminary professors and the seminary students. That is not the case. This letter was written to a very young Christian church. The Ephesian Christians had been converted probably only a couple of years before this. And now they're receiving a letter. A letter from the Apostle Paul, not to write big and lofty doctrines, though they are lofty and they are great and they are profound, but he was writing to them so that they would understand what God had done in their lives, what God was doing in them, and what God was doing to them. And how radically he had changed their lives. And that means, congregation, as we read this, we can read it very personally and say, whatever God did in the lives of the Ephesian Christians, though it may have been maybe more dramatic than our experience, especially of those who have grown up in Christian families, a lot of these folks had grown up in the culture in Ephesus where they worshipped a fertility goddess. And where they saw little shrines and little trinkets all over the place because they, that was a part of the trade of the day. And that's the culture they grew up in. But when God laid hold of their lives, it changed in a very radical way. Congregation, that's the same thing that we ought to see and recognize in terms of how different, hopefully, our lives are from the world around us. Ephesians chapter 1 then, beginning to read at verse 15, hear God's word and receive it with a believing heart. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There ends the reading of God's word. May he also add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I had wanted to entitle the sermon, How to Pray for Fame and Riches and Power. But I thought perhaps that title might be misunderstood, and you might think that I was preaching the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But when you think about those three things, we find that the natural man, our world around us, is interested in those three things, aren't they? They are interested in in a reason to live. We could call that hope. They are interested in riches because it gives us the resources by which to live, right? It's perceived that money will solve so many of our difficulties and our problems. And the third thing is power. Whether it's political power or other forms, it's the idea and the sense that I want to be in control. I want to be able to somehow take control of my circumstances. Well, congregation, I want you to notice that these are the very three things that Paul prays for for the congregation here in Ephesus. For hope, for riches, and for power. But it's not in the way that the world perceives them. But it supplies what the world is looking for, but it supplies it in a way that only God can supply. And this is what we have for us tonight. Congregation, I want to give you something to pray for in the coming week. Actually, in the coming year. Or perhaps for the rest of your life. The Apostle Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus would understand something and see something that is not necessarily obvious to everyone. Notice these three things. The first one is to pray for hope. I put it this way. Who are you? What is your identity? Who are you really? And it is here that we want to pray to recognize our hope. What is our hope? When I introduce myself or when I meet new people, I ask, uh, who, who are you? And the first thing that we typically do is we say, this is my name. And then after that, we start to say things about ourselves by which we think we might be identified. And so oftentimes we say, this is the work that I do, or this is my family, or this is where I live, or here's how many children I have. This is how we define ourselves. Congregation... Think about the Christians in Ephesus. They had a brand new identity, and that is what, in a sense, identified them in every area of life. What is that identity? Look at verse 18. 
He says, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Congregation, what is your hope? And who has called you to it? Every one of us has a calling. And so I want to break this down into two areas. First of all, God's calling. God's calling. Notice that it is God who calls us. The hope to which He has called you. Now, what is that hope? What is that calling? Well, if we use other places in Ephesians, we can get an idea of what that is. Go across the page in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And notice in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Notice, the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is that calling? That's what we're trying to discover here. Drop down to 4 verse 4. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. You see how it's starting to get a little bit clearer. What is your call? Well, there's this one call, and it has to do with uh, there being one body and one spirit. If we read on in 4 verse 5, it says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me state it very clearly, congregation. Your calling, my calling, is to belong to the body of Christ. It is to belong to the body of Christ. We get that from Ephesians chapter 4, especially verses 4 and 5. But how, how did that happen? What happened to you? What happened to me? How did you get into the family of God? Or if you're an Ephesian, had you lived back in Paul's day, you would have asked yourself, or maybe you weren't asking it, but Paul wanted you to ask that. How did you get in? How did you become a member? How is it that you left the cult of the worship of Artemis? How is it that you left that that Greek culture of paganism? How is it that you left the desires of the flesh where there was all kinds of immorality going on in the culture, just as we see in our world today? How did you leave that? Well, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, we get a little bit of an idea. In Ephesians, actually Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 11, he writes this to these Ephesian Christians. He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews called you uncircumcised, but and that's what you were, but he says, at the end of verse 11, he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. But then verse 12, he picks up his, his line of thought again, and he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world. 
You see these two ideas that are coming together. You have been called and your hope is in your call. God called you. And God called you by the teaching of His Word. For some of you, it was when you were just a little child, already two, three, four, five years old, your parents were teaching the truth of God's Word to you. Maybe some of you, it was later in life where God brought you under certain circumstances and maybe it was in a hotel room and you happened to pick up a Gideon Bible and you started to read and you began to understand things that you never understood before. Do you see what that is? That's God calling you. So that whether you came gradually and and growing up perhaps in a Christian family or whether God at one particular point in your life drew you to Himself, it was God who called you. A powerful call. Now that's looking at it from God's standpoint. God's calling. What God has done. But now we look at it in a second way and that is your calling. Our calling. What is our calling? Our calling is then to live as those who belong to that family. What difference does it make, you see, when I, be, when I say to myself, God has called me to live as a member of His family? I think we can make, mention several things. What can I expect by perceiving this hope? One, one uh, detail or one application could be simply this. It gives me an accurate view of myself. It gives you an accurate view of yourself. How do you see yourself? How do you introduce yourself? Who are you? When's the last time you were introduced and the first thing that you said, well, my name is is Ken, but the first thing that you need to know about me is that I'm a sinner called by God to be in his family. I belong to God's family. Maybe it would make for an awkward introduction. But maybe as we do it more often, we would get a sense of who am I? And how do I fit in God's family? And how do I think of myself? You see, when we think of ourselves in this way, when I go off to work tomorrow morning, I go off to work not simply as a man who happens to have this skill. I don't simply go off to the office because this is the, the job that I've been hired to do. I go off to my work, whether it's in the office or if it's on the farm or it's in the home. I go off to that work and I think of myself first and foremost, I am a member of the family of God. And it begins to transform the way that I think about myself. And that leads to a second thing, and that is that it gives me a sense of confidence. I'm somebody. I'm somebody because God has made me somebody. I'm somebody because of God, not because of me, not because of what I've done, not because of what I've accomplished, but whom God has called me to be. And that's tied in with a third application, and that would be purpose. Purpose in life. Congregation, what is your purpose? Does your life have, have purpose? What, what is the focus? What, what is your aim in life? Is it to make a lot of money? Is it just to, just to survive? Is it just to provide for your family? Or would you say that your focus is to live my life as a child of God? To live as a member of the family of God. Not just me and God, but me in the context of others who have also been called. This is my calling. This is your calling. This is our calling. You see, congregation, when we rightly understand our identity, when we rightly understand who we are, it begins to transform 
the way in which we conduct ourselves, not only in what we do, but the attitude with which we do it. So that's the first thing. Pray that you would recognize your hope. What is your hope? Not not a maybe, but what God has called you to do and to be. And one day we will stand, as I mentioned this morning, in the congregation of the righteous before the presence of God without any, any sin in us or upon us. That leads me to the second thing. Riches. Riches. What are you worth? What are you worth? Here, is we, here we want to pray to recognize your riches. Recognize your riches. Go with me back again to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your, of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, these Christians in Ephesus, they are young Christians. And Paul is now writing to them and he says, I want to tell you the kind of prayer that I've been praying on your behalf. And he says, I've been praying that God would show you how rich you are. This is one of the things that the world is concerned about. And obviously, uh, it's a, a matter that we're concerned about. Am I going to be able to pay my bills? Am I going to be able to put food on the table? Are we able to function as a family? But Paul is interested not first of all what your net worth is, how much money you have in the bank, what you got in your portfolio, what you got saved up for retirement, what's in your piggy bank, boys and girls. He wants us to understand what is it that we have. What is it that we have? Do you consider yourself to be rich because of what you have in Christ Jesus? Well, let's take a look at the Scriptures to figure this out. First of all, what is our inheritance? He says, pray that we might recognize the riches of our inheritance in the saints. And so we have to go back and recognize that, first of all, that we are an heir of the Son. We are an heir of the Son. Go with me to chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, In Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What? According to the riches. The riches of His grace. Do you see what we're doing, congregation? We see the word riches here in chapter uh, 1, verse 18. We go back in the letter of Paul to say, where, where are the other places that he's used the same term to help us to understand what he has in mind? And when he thinks of the riches of God's grace, he thinks of the blood of Jesus Christ by which our sins have been covered and the way in which our sins have been forgiven. This is the same old message, isn't it? But this is also why we need this prayer just as much as these young Ephesian Christians needed it. Because too often, congregation, we say, oh yeah, I understand the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's simple stuff. I want to get into the complicated stuff. But congregation, we get... Uh, we really get an understanding and a motivation and an excitement when we understand what God has done for us. The soldier on the battlefield 
who was laying there in the foxhole and one of his buddies jumped on the grenade in order that when the grenade exploded, all the shrapnel went into his buddy's body so that he went home free. Do you ever think that he, he ever stops thinking of that as he goes back home to freedom, to safety, and he says, it was, the, it was my buddy in the foxhole that saved my life. Congregation, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we were destined for hell. An eternity under the wrath of God. A place that is described as the lake of fire. A place that is described as a a place where the worm never dies. A place that is described where there is the, the gnashing of teeth. A place that is described of always wanting to die, but never being able to die and, and, and get away from it. Jesus Christ died in order that you and I might have freedom through the forgiveness of our sins. We are heirs of the Son. How rich are you? Jesus Christ, the eternal God, came into this world and offered Himself Not all the money in the world. Not all the gold. Not all the silver. Not all the services of this world. None of it could pay for our debt before God, but only the Lord Jesus Christ, which means congregation. We are infinitely wealthy. Even if we should lose everything else in our possession, we are infinitely wealthy. Wealthy. The second thing I want to point out here is that we are heirs of the Spirit. Heirs of the Spirit. Drop down in chapter 1 to verse 14. Actually, back up to verse 13, where the sentence begins. It says, In him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. With the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So notice again what we're doing here. In verse 18, we are praying that we might understand the riches of the inheritance with the saints. What is that inheritance? According to verse 14, the inheritance has a guarantee and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Other translations speak of this as a down payment. A down payment. And and I think that analogy is helpful for us. Because if you think about it, when you go buy a house, for instance, when you make a down payment... You pay with money. And that down payment says that this is the beginning, this is the first installment, and I'm going to pay you more money. What I'm getting at is the down payment is not different from the other that we're going to pay. It's the same. So that when we think of the Holy Spirit as being the guarantee, the Holy Spirit is the down payment So that what we have received in the Spirit is not different from the rest of the inheritance that we will receive. 
What is the inheritance of the Spirit? The inheritance of the Spirit is God Himself. And what is the inheritance of the saints? It is more of God. What is heaven going to be? What is the new heavens and the, and the new earth going to be? It is going to be in the presence of God where we no longer have the distractions of sin. We no longer have this, this barrier in which the Apostle Paul said, now we see through a glass dimly. We cannot see it clearly yet. But we have the Spirit as a down payment. And now the Apostle Paul, when he says, pray that you might understand and that you might see the riches of the inheritance of the saints, understand that you already have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not something different than what you will fully receive in the end, but you have it already now. It is the guarantee. It is the down payment. It is the promise. It is God's commitment. And you know what that means for us congregation? It means that we have security. Security and safety in God. The last thing in terms of the riches, it is that we are heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom. If you turn with me to chapter 5, verse 5. He says this. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance. Notice that word again. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What are the riches of the inheritance of the saints? It is having citizenship in God's kingdom. Now, most of you are Americans. And if you travel abroad, you have a passport that is an American passport. And that passport allows you to go certain places. It gives you access to certain places. And it allows you to come back into this country. And as American citizens, we oftentimes don't think about it. But you can stay here permanently. But people who come from other, other nations, they may only come here on a temporary basis. They may only be here as long as they have a visa and they have to go through the paperwork and the process to receive permission to be here. But as an American citizen, you don't have to do that. You wake up in America and you are Americans. And you go about your business here in America because you're an American. What the Apostle Paul is saying is we all belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a kingdom in which Jesus Christ is king. We belong to a kingdom where there are different laws. And we read that law this morning, didn't we? What is the law in God's kingdom? It is the law of love. Love God above all. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is that kingdom that you belong to. Now, we could say a number of things about that kingdom, but I think it will become very much more clear in just a moment here. But let me show you, how is it that you get into that kingdom? Back up to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Again, he's writing primarily to Gentiles, and he says in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
You see, this was the great issue in the Old Testament. The Gentiles really had a hard time becoming part of the, of the Jewish congregation. But the Apostle Paul writes in, in Ephesians and he says, Gentiles, do you understand what happened in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand how the kingdom, in a sense, was thrown wide open to you? And as I look across the congregation here tonight, it would appear to me that most of you, if not all of you, are non-Jewish by your descent. Do you see what that means for us? How is it that we came into the kingdom of God? It was that God opened the doors to us. Already beginning with the promise of Abraham in the Old Testament, but really was not opened wide to us until Jesus Christ came and the Holy Spirit was poured out when He ascended into heaven and then the Word began to go around the globe and around the world. We have had it for so long, congregation, that sometimes I think we take it for granted that we have been given access to the kingdom of God. Well, we pray that we might have hope We pray that we might have riches. The third thing is the question, what's happening in you? What has happened to you? What has God done to you? We need to pray that we would recognize your power. Go back to Ephesians 1, 18. Now we're going to move into verse 19. Notice what it says. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And now thirdly, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Notice that. The immeasurable greatness. We cannot measure this power. We cannot measure it in terms of pounds. We cannot measure it in terms of kilowatts. We cannot measure it in any way. It is just overwhelmingly great. What is this power? Notice at least uh, this power in two ways. First of all, power over Satan. Power over Satan. If we read on in verse 19, it says, what is this power? He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of this power toward us who believe. In what way? According to the working of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead... And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You understand what he's saying? When he refers to the rule, authority, power, and dominion, he's talking about the kingdom of Satan. Remember this morning we talked about angels in the invisible realm. Well, there are powers in this world today, congregation. In fact, Paul's going to pick up that same language at the beginning of chapter 2. When he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, this idea of belonging to the kingdom of Jesus Christ isn't just a nice way of thinking about uh, what the church is today. It is a reality. 
Congregation, we belong either to one kingdom or another. And if you are not in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are still in the kingdom of Satan. Living by our own desires, living by our own uh, wishes, the lust of the flesh. But it's by being transferred into a new kingdom, into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have not only a new status, but in one sense, a new power by which we live. It is a power by which you and I have been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we confess in Lord's Day 1, isn't it, of our catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. And so far, so good. We all agree with that, and that's very clear. But the next line says, And has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have actually been set free from the tyranny of the devil and if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins and if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave His Spirit to be the guarantee of your inheritance with the saints that you would still be under the dominion of Satan living according to the lust of the flesh and being dominated by that? Paul is praying that these Ephesian Christians would begin to get a glimpse of what has actually happened to them. The Apostle Paul came to Ephesus. He preached. Very likely it was Priscilla and Aquila who had also preached and had brought the word there in Ephesus, had done some discipling there. And some of them, one by one, started to say, well, this is very interesting, and now began to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, a couple of years later, the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and he says, I want you to understand what happened to you. You have begun to see some changes in your life. You have left the ways of Artemis. You have left the sacrificial system of going up to the great temple of Artemis. And you have started you started to pray to the living God. And we've seen changes. The Apostle Paul began that way in this letter. He says, when I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when I heard about the way that you loved one another, he says, I could not help but keep praying for you. They had seen a change in their lives. Congregation, do you recognize that the Christian habits in your life the ways in which you have begun to walk in the ways of God, do you recognize that you have been set free from the tyranny of the devil? That's what the Apostle Paul wanted the Ephesians to know, and that's what I desire for you as well, that you might know of the immeasurable greatness of the power, the power over Satan, the principalities, And let me just make one other connection here with the sermon this morning. Did you notice? In verse 21, it says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. 
Remember what the theme was from this morning's sermon, Psalm 148? Praise from the heavens. Why? Because he has a name above every name. Why praise the Lord from the earth? Praise the name of the Lord because it is exalted above all other names. In Philippians 2 it says, At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow because He has the name that is above all other names. It is not just the name brand you see. It is the name by which we identify this is the God who is superior in power and able to take people like you and me out of the kingdom of darkness and put us in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no accident, it is not merely tradition that has brought you to where you are in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to one last thing then about this power. It is not only power over Satan, but it is the power of life. The power of life. And here's where I think it's important that you notice that chapter 2 begins with the word and. As if to say, we're just following along what we had already looked at in the preceding paragraph. And Paul was just, uh, just praying about how it was that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that set him at the right hand of God the Father, which we celebrated this past Thursday on Ascension Day. What is that power and what difference does it make in our lives? How did it give us life? Well, as I've already mentioned in chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How does the world live? The world lives by the desires of their flesh. And then, congregation, don't you realize that we have much in common with the folks who live in the world because we still feel the tug of the flesh that says, you know that this is right, but go over and do this. Dads and moms, you know exactly what we're talking about. Right? When your kids get into a tussle... And they do something that they know that they should not have done. And you as a parent go to that child and said, Now, haven't I told you that you ought not to do this? And they said, Yeah. And when you did it, did you remember that this was uh, uh, against what I told you to do? Yes. Then why did you do it? And you know what your kid says. I don't know. Congregation. Adults, when's the last time you did something that you knew you ought not to do, but you did it anyway? Why did you do it? Because the lusts of the heart are still strong. But notice this. Verse 4 goes on to say, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, this isn't just a slogan of the Reformation. This is the power by which we live our lives. Are you struggling with a particular sin? Let me say to you, dear friend, you don't have to sin. 
You don't have to sin. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, you have the power. You have the power to say no to the next temptation that comes along the way. Are you praying for that? Are you praying about your temptation? Are you praying that God would strengthen you according to the spirit that he has already given to you? And do you understand the power that is in a sense at your fingertips to fight against those desires? You see, that's what Paul wanted these young Christians in Ephesus to understand. You're not alone. So that when you feel like going back to some of the old ways and some of the old traditions of, of Artemis, the, the fertility goddess and, and the immoral ways that go with that, he said, do you realize... I want you to have your eyes open, not your physical eyes, but your eyes of your heart, whereby you say, yes, God is able to preserve me. He is able to draw me back. He is able to put life in me by which I long for that which is right and true rather than that which is evil and lustful. Congregation, this is my prayer for you. And I urge you to make this your prayer that you would pray, number one, that you would have greater clarity about the hope of your calling as a member of the body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, pray that you would have a greater clarity and an awareness of the riches of the inheritance of the saints that has already been given to you in the Son, in the Spirit, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And third, that you might pray to know more clearly about what's going on inside of you. How have you gotten to where you're at? Why is this struggle with sin still a reality? It's because the, the power of God at work in you by His Spirit. Pray that God would open your eyes to see that so that you would all the more rejoice in Him, depend upon Him, worship Him. You see, this is the God who has provided everything that the world is searching for, right? What does the world want? They want a hope. In other words, a purpose for living. You have it as a believer in Jesus Christ. Your purpose is being members of the body of Christ. What is the world looking for? They want resources that will provide for them, especially in the crises of life. Christian, you already have it. It's the riches that you already have in Christ Jesus. And what is the world looking for? Power, the ability to control their situation, the, the ability to control the, the level of the crises at hand. Congregation, you have it. You have it in the power. In the power that by which Jesus was raised from the dead, the power by which he was seated at the right hand of the God, the power by which he has raised you dead sinners from de being dead to your trespasses and sins. This is the power of God. And you have it. You have the fame, you have the riches, and you have the power. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you. We thank you that we have this model prayer from the Apostle Paul to know what ought to be important. Father, we oftentimes pray for many, many earthly and material matters, 
And indeed, it is proper for us to do that. But Father, oftentimes we fail to recognize our greater needs. And through Paul's prayer tonight, we recognize the need for us to have greater insight, to be more completely aware of these three things. And so we pray now, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to see and to recognize and to be aware of the hope of our calling so that we would see ourselves more and more as those who belong to your family with Jesus Christ as our older brother, with you as our father, with with the Holy Spirit as our personal comforter. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might recognize the exceedingly immeasurable riches that you have given to the saints. Father, as we recognize the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we recognize the gift of your Spirit, as we recognize the place that we have in a new kingdom, having been set free from the tyranny of the devil, Father, may we see those riches. And finally, Heavenly Father, we pray according to this model prayer and ask that you would help us to perceive all the more clearly the tremendous power that has already been at work on our, on, on our behalf by raising Jesus from the dead and giving him authority over all things in heaven and on earth, but also the power that you are working in us by your Holy Spirit, not only to bring us to yourself initially, but to renew us day by day. Father, may we recognize it, may we see it, and as we face the temptations that come to us, may we more readily turn to you, knowing that you have given to us tremendous resources to fight the temptations and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we might love what you love and hate what you hate. Oh, Lord God, may you help us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing from number 87, number 87A. Actually, this is the psalm that I had in mind earlier when I said, notice the kind of people that are brought into the kingdom of God. 87a, Zion founded. Zion is uh, another name for Jerusalem, but it is also used as a, as a symbolic city of God's people. And you'll notice that God is building this city, and he calls in people that otherwise had been enemies of God's people. And let us recognize that we too, by the grace and power of God, have been brought in. We sing the three stanzas, number 87A. Please stand to sing.
Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are grateful for the way in which you have brought us into the kingdom of God. And because of this thanksgiving, we want to say it by giving our monies. Tonight, Father, we pray for your blessing upon El Pacto de Gracia as the outreach ministry of the Faith United Reformed Church. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, for Reverend Ruben Cernas and for his ministry among the Spanish-speaking people in the greater Chicago Heights area. Father, may you give to him great strength and blessing as he goes about his work. May he see fruit upon his labor. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless him and his family. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would also uh, allow us to see the work that you do through the preaching of your word, even in places this close to home. O Father in heaven, receive our offerings, for we present them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We make a confession of our undoubted Christian faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. If you need to see that, it's on page 851 in the back of your Psalter hymnals. But I would ask you to please stand to make that confession with me as part of our worship. We join the church of all ages in making this confession. And so I ask you tonight, congregation, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lift up your hearts, congregation, and receive the parting blessing of your Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine down upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen.